our Bibles, we'll open them to Ephesians chapter 3. This evening, of course, we continue our exposition of the book of Ephesians. And we're in a section of this third chapter where Paul is praying a very powerful uh, spiritual prayer for the Ephesian church. If you want to know what it means to have a deeper experience with Christ, to live a deeper Christian life, then these are the verses that you need to turn to. This is what Paul is praying for. You know, I've been approached many times by Christians who are, who are struggling, and it seems like they never are able to get comfortable in their Christian skin, so to speak. And they're consistently having troubles about how they can put away the things of the flesh and how they can get rid of these uh, different things in their life that keep them from experiencing the fullness of this life in Christ. And this is the very thing that Paul is praying about in this chapter. He's not praying for persecution to stop for these people, although, of course, that would be very desirable. He's not praying for health and wealth and prosperity, like the modern-day Word of Faith movement does. That's not his prayer. His prayer is that they might have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse number 16, he spoke about inner strength. Verse 17, he talks about Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith. And as we come to the end of the 17th verse and on into the 18th verse, he follows up with this phrase. He says, being rooted and grounded in love. Well, love is the theme tonight or the message. And I want to speak to you about the dimensions of Christ's love. And I want to show you what Paul means by this saying, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. I want to ask you tonight to play very close attention because I'm going to speak quickly. I've got a lot of ground to cover, and some of the things that I'm going to say may be a little bit difficult for you to grasp at first, so pay very close attention. So let's stand, if you would, please, as uh, we read God's Word, and let's go back to the beginning here of this prayer in verse number 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that we have here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the subject matter and how awesome it is to speak about this. And so often we feel inadequate for the message that needs to be brought. But I just pray, Lord, you might uh, help me as I preach the message tonight and you might uh, help everyone in this congregation to understand well what we have to say. And may we be able to comprehend these dimensions of Christ's love. And we'll give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you tonight, what is the one characteristic of Christianity that stands out above all other characteristics? I don't think that there would be many of us who would hesitate even for a moment to say that the greatest characteristic of Christianity or the thing that characterizes Christianity is love. That one single word, perhaps, for many people, boils down what Christianity is all about. It's the word love. Well, to come to the place where Paul says in verse number 19 that we might be filled with the fullness of God, we have to nail down this concept of love. 
We've got to understand exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now, if you look back on the ministry of Christ in the New Testament, and you see the many debates that Jesus had and the arguments that he had with the Jews, almost all of the time it it centered on the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and whether Jesus was keeping the law. They accused Jesus of of profaning the Sabbath. They said that his disciples were ungodly because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Uh, They talked about Jesus being a blasphemer. And the whole truth of the Jewish religious system at the time of Christ, all that it centered on, or what it, it centered on being inwardly focused. It was all inwardly focused. They purported that they were worshiping Jehovah God, but really their religion was focused on themselves rather than upon God. Now, what Jesus tried to show these Jews is that they had a religion that was out without a real heart and soul for God. They had religion without realizing where all of these laws that were given to them uh, by Moses, the Ten Commandments, their religion focused on that, but they didn't really understand where this law was to take them. The law was not to have its terminus in the individual. The law was to end in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 24. He said, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so when Jesus began to uh, explain the law to the Jews, he explained it in terms that they weren't expecting. They asked him to tell them, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And when Jesus explained the greatest commandment, he didn't even go to the Ten Commandments and quote anything that was in the Ten Commandments. But rather, here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. He said, thou shalt love The Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says all of the commandments can be boiled down to this one word, love. First, there is love for God. And then secondly, there's love for our fellow man. Now, right here is where most of Christianity rests its case. And it says, this is what defines us. What defines us is our love for God and our love for each other. And folks, that's a great principle. That's a great principle to live by. And if you get that straight, you are well on your way to living the fullness of the Spirit uh, of Christ. But when Paul speaks about love in Ephesians chapter 3, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about love in that way. Now, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 is very important. We need to get that straight. Every Christian needs to learn it, and every Christian needs to practice it. But you'll never come to the place that you understand what Matthew chapter 22 is talking about until you understand what Paul is speaking about love in Ephesians chapter 3. Because what he's talking about is not our response to God. Not our response to God's love, but in fact, God's love for us. That is the very thing that motivates our love for each other and our love for God. It's God's love for us. Now, folks, that's why I believe that you cannot generalize love. You can't generalize God's love in such a way to say that God loves all of mankind equally, that God loves everybody equally, or even that you could even generalize love in such a sense. You can see, the love of God has to be directed specifically at his people and to no others. Otherwise, there's nothing that differentiates us from the rest of the world. Now, if what is left is all that we do is differentiate ourselves from other people, 
then we don't really understand what it means to bring all the glory to God. There has to be a difference in the way that God loves his people as opposed to how God reacts to everyone in the world. This is for the glory of God. And so God is the one who makes a difference in us by the way that he loves. Now, does the Bible really teach that God's love is so specific? Can it be brought down to those kinds of terms? Well, I think that both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach this. For instance, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, the word know that you see in that verse is the same one that we find in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And in that verse, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. In other words, the word know there is not merely knowledge like we think of. Here is a different word that actually means an intimacy of love. It's to have a special relationship. And that's what God says about Israel. The actual statement is, and you only... Of all the families of the earth have I loved. I've deeply loved you above all the families of the earth. Now, of course, there were many different people in the world throughout the Old Testament. There were many nations in the Old Testament. But Israel is the only nation that God said that he loved. Now, the same thing is true in the New Testament. Jehovah God is in the Old Testament and Jesus, Jehovah God, is in the New Testament. And here's what he said in John chapter 17. Verse number 23, he said, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, folks, the whole context of John chapter 17 is Jesus praying for believers. And what he does here is to distinguish his people from the rest of the world. And so he prays in the 23rd verse that they would recognize, these people would recognize how the Father loves them and that this love is equal to the love that the Father has for his own son, Jesus. So you see here, you can't generalize the love of God to to unbelievers and to those who will eventually end up in the fires and the punishment of hell. There has to be a difference in the way that God loves his people above and beyond the way that people, uh, all of the people in the world who may end up in the fires of hell. Now, this is what it means to understand God's special love for you if you trust in him. And that's what Ephesians chapter 3 is talking about. Now, that's just the introduction to the sermon. Paul prays for the Ephesians to be rooted and grounded in love. The deeper that a tree is rooted, the taller that it'll grow. The deeper that the foundations of a building are laid, the taller that you can build the building. And what Paul is saying here is that the more that the love of God anchors you, then the greater the heights that you can reach in your Christian life. Now, let me point out the subject matter tonight, the dimensions of love. In the end of verse number 17, we read that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And those four terms, breadth, length, depth, and height, are the dimensions that I'm talking about tonight. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the breadth of Christ's love. And this is expressed in the variations in the multitudes. Now, when Paul is speaking about the breadth of Christ's love, you have to picture the immensity of God. And you must picture God 
in such a way that he's able to reach his arms around the entire world and he's able to draw people from all nations unto himself. From all areas of the globe, God is able to bring people to himself. Now, all of the measurements that we have here speak about the vastness of Christ's love. And, and Paul may very well had in his mind the idea of a building that God has a building that is built so large that he can contain everything that he wants to contain in it. If you go back to chapter 2, that was the picture, wasn't it? Paul was talking about the building of God. He was talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this building is built exactly to Christ's specifications. He knows exactly how much room is needed in that building. And because God is omniscient, God never builds smaller God never builds larger than he needs to build. And the reason for that is, is because God knows his people. He's known about it all the way from the foundation of the world. He chose them, the Bible said. Their names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. And so God knows the exact dimensions and he knows the exact number of people that are going to be brought to him. Now, the plain fact of this matter is that not every single person in the world is included in this. Because if they were, then we would be speaking about universal salvation. I wouldn't need to preach to you about hell. I wouldn't need to talk to you about people dying and going to hell because nobody would go there. If the whole number of people were included in this, there wouldn't be anybody at all in hell. But folks, while it does not include all people, what it does do, it includes a great variation of people. People from all over the world, multitudes from all over this globe. Now, the book of Revelation gives us some insight into actually how many people will be saved. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, there for just a moment to Revelation chapter 7. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 3, because, of course, we're coming back. But look at Revelation chapter 7. I want you to notice verse number 9 here. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number... Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. Remember that scripture. Now turn back to the fifth chapter of Revelation and let's look at verse number nine there. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You know, sometimes as Americans, we forget that this country is not God's chosen nation. We can't be exclusive about who that we think that God's going to call to salvation. A few weeks ago, I was speaking about the diversity of our church. And Lord, I, I, and people, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy that we're able to minister to many different kinds of people. We minister to Americans and perhaps Indians, Koreans, Haitians, Russians, Mexicans. It doesn't matter because God doesn't say that, that people only of one nation can be saved. God brings a vast multitude out of every nation. Oh, I'm thankful that we can send missionaries all around the world... We'll send the gospel to people that we will never meet in this life and people can receive the gospel of Christ and we'll have the opportunity to meet them in the next life. I'm thankful that God enables us to do that. And sometimes we think that as Berean Baptist Church, we're just a small outpost out here. I mean, we're just a a little bitty outpost in this vast sea of wickedness that's around us. And we get discouraged by that sometimes and we think that maybe we're the only people that are left. 
But the fact of the matter is, God has people all over the world. And the antidote for that kind of thinking is to remember the breadth of Christ's love. How much that this love includes. You know, this is why it's so sad to think about those Jews in the first century. The ones that Jesus was arguing with. They never understood the breadth of Christ's love. And so they were convinced that nobody else could be saved but them. They were always opposed to the idea that Gentiles could be saved. And if Gentiles could be saved, they would at least have to capitulate to all their rules and all the things that they live by. But essentially, they thought nobody but the Jewish race can be saved. But let me point this out to you. Listen, people on every continent need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. People everywhere need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul summed that up very well in the book of Colossians. He said, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all and in all. Let's don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is not for every single person. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that people of all races cannot be saved. And then besides the racial aspect of it, let's not forget that God calls people of all social and economic standings. You know, sometimes we can get over our racial differences, but what we can't get over is our social differences. Do you know what was once said in this church? that the focus of our ministry should be on white-collar people instead of blue-collar people? God help us if we ever think like that. If we ever think that because a person is a, a farmer or a factory worker instead of a banker or working for Microsoft, that somehow they are beneath us, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Folks, if you ever see yourself culturally as being such, uh, making such a difference or economically such a difference that, that you stand out about other people and your supposed status will separate you from them, you just remember this. Christ was right down next to a beggar in this life. He had no home. He had no bank account. He was born in a feed box. He was born on the wrong side of the track, so to speak. But Jesus Christ became the Savior of the world and the King of glory. He was the King of glory. That's the breadth of Christ's love. And it includes every continent, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every nationality. And we're to speak the gospel to every person and not to keep this news to ourselves. That is the breadth of Christ's love. Now, next, Paul mentions here another dimension. He mentions the length of God's love. So next, we can talk about the duration of the covenant. Now, I'm happy to report to you tonight that the love of Jesus Christ is everlasting. He entered into a covenant with the Heavenly Father. Now, here's something about salvation that most people don't realize. Perhaps they've never heard or they just simply don't know about this. Did you know that salvation is not a contract between you and God? Salvation is not a contract between you and God. Salvation is a contract between Jesus and the Father. You cannot look entirely to your faith in Jesus Christ or your love for Christ or whatever it is, and you cannot just simply think about everlasting life in Christ and, and call that the basis of your assurance. The real basis of our assurance is the guarantee of eternal salvation that rests because of the covenant between the Father and the Son. This is an eternal covenant. You see, there was a pact that's been made between Jesus and the Father. And this 
agreement or this pact is over those who have been chosen to salvation. Now, in John chapter 17, which we believe is really the Lord's Prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and he's talking to the Father about something that happened before time began. In verse number 2 of John 17, he says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, there's a very clear transaction that's taken place at some time or another. Somewhere, at some time, God gave some to Jesus Christ. And that's what this conversation is about. The agreement is that all who have been given to the Son by the Father will receive eternal life. Now, the big question for us all then is, when was this agreement made? When did it take place? It tells us right here in the book of Ephesians. You know it very well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul stated it another way in a parallel passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. He said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So Christ's love is everlasting because the covenant with the Father is eternal. The covenant goes back before time began. It stretches all the way to eternity and the future. In the 24th verse of John 17, Jesus said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, if something began in eternity, then it can't be bound by time. You could no more lose your salvation than Jesus could fall out of love with the Father, that Jesus could lose the Father's love. Both of those are anchored in eternity and not in time. You know, the most powerful scriptures, I think, in the Bible that are written on this subject is in Romans chapter 8. I want you to turn to Romans 8 for just a minute, and we're going to look at verse number 35. I'm going to read these verses again on Sunday because it has to do with the message on Sunday as well, but you can't get enough of this. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it amazing that people can read that passage of Scripture and they can still come to the conclusion that salvation can be lost? And you know why they think that? It's because they have missed or they have ignored the eternal eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. Do you know the difference between modern-day preaching and preaching of, say, just 100 years ago? you know what the difference is? Preachers have become so practical in their preaching. They are so concerned about practical issues all of the time that they are no longer theological. They're no longer looking at the Bible to see what the Bible has to say in its theology. And consequently, we have a lot of mixed-up people If you read the Puritan writers from about 300 years ago, here's what you'll find. They are constantly delving into this covenant of redemption. They're always looking into 
what happened in this covenant between the Father and the Son before time began. And the covenant of redemption is what led them to the doctrines of grace and led them to the realization that the fall of man was anticipated, that God knew exactly what Adam would do when he put him in the garden and that God had already planned for Jesus to come into the world to save man. That was all anticipated by God. This is not a plan that was hastily thrown together because things in the world went wrong. All of it was comprehended by God. This is in God's plan and program all along. What God is it that creates, who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, and not only anticipates everything that will happen, but has planned for things to happen? What kind of a God doesn't do that? Do builders ever start building a house and they wait till they're finished to figure out where they're going to put the bathroom? Would that make very much sense? No, the plans are drawn up. I mean, the architect already knows where this is going to be. And when that house starts to go up, they put in the interior walls and here a wall goes up and that makes one side of the bathroom. And they put another wall up and that makes the other side of the bathroom. And then when they get finished with the house, everything is in its proper place. It's all there. You ever noticed how they pour a slab for a new house that's going to be built? What do they do? One of the things they do is they put all the plumbing in in that slab before they pour it. Then they come along and they pour the concrete and what you see after they pour the concrete are all these pipes sticking up everywhere. Now, there's no kitchen there. There's no bathroom there, but I guarantee you they are anticipated. And when the right time comes, it'll all be put together exactly as it should be and there's a bathroom in that house. Folks, this is the way that God worked before the foundation of the world. You can just put it this way. He put the plumbing in. It was all there, and then at the proper time, it all worked out and came into place exactly as it should. That's the kind of God that we serve. He knows all things because he planned all things. Now, notice this statement. Christ's love is not an afterthought. Christ's love didn't suddenly come into being when you and I were born. This was already in place before time began. Our names were already written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Read Revelation 13, verse 8, and Revelation 17, verse 8. That's what it says. God does not do anything by our timetable. God is outside of time. Now, your salvation, of course, that takes place in time, but you can rest assured in this. Your salvation was planned outside of time. God planned that. So God never figures out anything lately. Everything's already in his plan and purpose. But not only does the Bible teach that, but it also teaches that as long as Christ lives, you will live. He lives eternally. And so if you are in him, you will live eternally. How long does he live? Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for for them. How long does Christ live? He ever liveth. He lives forever. And so as long as Christ lives, you live. So there we have the breadth and we have the length of Christ's love. But Paul still has some more dimensions because now he mentions the depth of Christ's love. Now as we think about depth, we think about the privation of the benefactor. Now do you understand what the word privation means? Privation simply means deprived. It means to be in poverty. And I suppose for us to understand how deep that the love of Jesus is, we have to look at what he was willing to do to prove it. When a husband loves his wife or or wife loves her husband, you can see 
They are loved by the considerations that they have for one another. Real love is many times and probably often manifested by self-sacrifice. I could say that I know my wife loves me because she's self-sacrificing. There are lots of things that she doesn't have, she can't, she won't have probably because she is interested in the ministry that we do. We're in the ministry, and so she gives up a lot of things. There is self-sacrifice because she wants me and our church to succeed in the ministry. Well, the depth of Christ's love is deeper than we could ever describe. It's a self-sacrificing love. What did Christ do? Well, there's a very familiar scripture in Philippians chapter 2, and this is one that we often read, but we don't fully explain. And probably the reason we don't fully explain it because it deny, or defies full explanations. But Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now I want to concentrate on that phrase, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know what that means? Let me explain it to you in this statement. This is on your listening sheet tonight. Christ did not prize his equality above his love. Now, let me explain the statement to you. Christ did not look at humanity and say, the cost is too great. Here I am, I am God, and there is man, and because I'm God, there's no way that I'm going to become man because that is way too far beneath my dignity. There is no way that I'm going to lower myself to the place of a man. But there you have the depth of Christ's love. He came down. He came way down, folks. You and I don't understand how far the declension of Christ is. We do not understand that. We can never know it. You see, the reason we can't know this is because we really don't understand or we don't know the difference in being God and being man. There's no way that we can measure that. That is so far beyond our comprehension, we'll never understand this. And yet that is exactly what Christ done, has done. We don't have any dimensions to describe it. Now, for Christ to become a man, and for him to become the most highly esteemed man, the most loved man, for him to become the most praised man of all time, that's still a slope that's too steep. But for Christ to become the most hated man, to become the most reviled man, the most persecuted man, the most hated man of all time. Folks, that's a sucking whirlpool right there. Your mind is going to go in a tailspin trying to think about that, why Christ would do such a thing. The Bible says he humbled himself. But not just that he humbled himself. Look at the way that Christ was treated. Why was he willing to come down so far? I mean, who would have what Christ had and do what Christ did? Who would do that? Well, there's only one explanation for it. The answer is the deep, 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 and keep on going deep love of Jesus Christ. It is so deep that nothing mattered even for him to be equal with God. He set aside his equality. That's how deep his love was. But now we can go a step further, and maybe this helps us to understand a little bit how, more how deep it is or how, deep, how much deeper if Christ had come to this earth to uh, save people that loved him, if he came to this earth to save people who had been looking for him and wanted him to come, and for people who were just expectant 
and rejoiced to see him when he came. And he came down to people who loved him beyond comprehension or measure, we might say. Then maybe we would begin to understand why Christ would do such a thing. But the fact of the matter is, Christ didn't come into the world like that. Christ came into the world to people who were his enemies, to people who hated him, people who did not love his coming. And folks, if there was worse than the cross that could have been done to Jesus Christ, worse than the cross would have been done to him. If it were possible for us to torture him even after he was dead, to do something worse to him after he was dead, you can believe that that would have been done to him. And yet the Bible teaches us that Christ knew all of that, and yet he came anyway. He came while we were lost sinners. Now, John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love, Jesus says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a big thing, isn't it? That's a big thing for a man to lay down his life for his friends. But just to show you how humble that Christ was, here's what Paul wrote about him in Romans 5, verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Folks, that's the measure of Christ's love, the depth of Christ's love. I don't have a measuring tape that long. Do you have one that long? I don't. The privation of our benefactor. Nobody can measure that. But now we need to go on and quickly finish the fourth dimension of Christ's love. And this is the height of his love. So fourthly, let's talk about the elevation of our position. When we think about the height of Christ's love, unfortunately, some people stop before they actually get to the top. They don't go all the way to the height of his love. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did he save us? What did Jesus intend to do? Well, some people think that Jesus loved us and so he came to this earth that we might be forgiven of our sins. Forgiveness of sins. This is the main reason that Jesus came to this earth. And if you think about that, forgiveness of sins is like an arm's length transaction. Like an arm's length transaction. When a judge is in a courtroom and he pronounces a person not guilty or he says, I'm going to pardon this person, he he does that as a matter of law. He defines this as law, and there really doesn't have to be any personal issues that are involved in this. I don't think that a person who was ever found not guilty looked at the judge and thought, wow, that judge sure does love me. He doesn't think like that because it's not a matter of love. That's not even a consideration. It's a matter of law. I remember a few years ago, I went to a traffic court. Probably deserved it a whole lot more times, but... I went to traffic court, and uh, I was disputing a traffic ticket that I was given. And fortunately, the judge agreed with me, and he says, I don't think you did this, so I'm not going to give you a fine. And I looked at that judge, and I said, Judge, I'm sure I'm glad you love me so much. I love you too. I didn't say that. Because as Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? That doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Love, that's that's a decision that's based on justice. It's a judicial transaction that takes place. So based upon what Christ has done in satisfying God's law for you, that's why we have forgiveness. And if that's all there was to it, you could go on your merry way and you would never even be phased by the love of Jesus Christ. That's simply a judicial transaction. So here's the thing about it. Don't stop at forgiveness. 
because there's more here. Let's state it this way. Forgiveness does not express the full height of Christ's love. So why did Christ come? Well, he did die to forgive us, but not just to forgive us. And he did come for us to give us a new birth and a new nature, but not just a new birth and a new nature. And he did come to save us so that we wouldn't be punished for our sins, but not just to escape punishment. So he didn't come just for forgiveness, new birth, new nature, no punishment. Here's the real height of Christ's love. And that is he came to this earth and saved us to share with us. Now, when you love somebody, what do you do? You share with them. Now, here's how Paul put it in Romans. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Now, you see what Christ has done here? We're way down here. We have absolutely nothing. And, not, and he not only says, I'm going to give you something, but he says, whatever I have is yours too. I'm going to share everything equally with you. If I have a friend who has $10 million, and he comes to me and says, you know something, I have $10 million, I'm going to give you a $1 million. I'm not going to argue with him. I'll say, I'll gladly accept a $1 million. I'm not going to go to him and say, now you've got $10 million, so I really think that you ought to give me $2 million, or you ought to give me $3 million. I'm going to be happy with a million dollars. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be happy with that. And if Jesus said, I'm going to give you heaven and that's enough, I would say that's enough for me. I'm satisfied with that. You don't have to give me anything else. I'm perfectly happy with heaven. But that's not what he did. He said, I've got $10 million and I'm going to share it with you. Only he doesn't have $10 million. He owns it all. And he said, I'm going to give it all to you. You're going to share equally with me. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, folks, and so do I. He owns a city that's full of mansions, and so do I. He owns the sun. He owns the planets. Eight or nine of them, depending on who you talk to, but he owns them. He owns all of them. He owns the Milky Way, and so do I. I have been elevated to position of having absolutely nothing to having everything, being a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And that's what Ephesians says in Ephesians 2, 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know something about that scripture? That scripture does not say that this is a future event. It says, and hath raised us up. You know what that means? I own it right now. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ right now. What he owns, I own. That's sure and steadfast. I mean, th- this is just as sure as my salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, folks, this is a part of our salvation. This is why Christ came. He came to share everything that he had. And it's real to us right now. It's so real that Paul put it this way in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. You see what God did? He gave us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, is a guarantee. It's an earnest just to show us that these things are really ours. 
That's why you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's why you know when Christ is living with, inside of you, why you can be happy, why you can experience this love, because Christ is sharing it all with you, and the Holy Spirit is the evidence that he does that. So now you've reached the top. You can't go any higher than this than to have everything that Christ have has. So here's what Jesus said in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There is the height of Christ's love. Jesus says, I'm come to save you so that where I am, there you can be. That's what I want. I want to be where he is. That's the height of his love. That ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. These are the dimensions of Christ's love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for the love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know it all starts with you. It's not that we loved you, but that you, but that you love us. And that's where it comes from. It can't start with us. It must begin with you. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. And there's no way that we can fathom those dimensions. And we thank you for just giving us a taste of what we can understand about you. Lord, bless your people tonight. Draw us close to you. Help us to be reminded of these things that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.